Today's reading is from Matthew six ten. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew twenty six thirty six. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch for me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let possible, let this cuff pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your word, sleep and rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello again. Uh, just to orient you, uh, if you're new today, we are in the series called As It Is. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer. We call it As It Is because we are focused on that central phrase on earth as it is in heaven because we recognize that in this prayer given by our Lord Jesus Christ, he is praying for the earth to become like it is in his heavenly home. And so when we pray as it is, the Lord's Prayer, we are praying the vision of Jesus for this earth. And that is why we have been calling this series Living in the Vision of Jesus. That brings us then to the third of the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. We've looked at Hallowed Be Thy Name two weeks ago, where we saw that our purpose is to magnify God's name. We looked at Thy Kingdom Come last week, which reminded us that we are to be busy making disciples as we wait for the Christ to come again. And today we pray, or, or are going to at least talk about, Thy Kingdom Come on earth as it is in heaven. And as we do this, we are going to grasp maybe more accurately than any of the others, how much it means for us to be praying to live in the vision of Jesus, what it means to be saying as it is in heaven. Because nothing strikes more closely to each and every one of our daily lives, our minute-by-minute lives, than the question of whose will is being done. One of my favorite movies uh, is about 10 years old. It's called About Schmidt. Have any of you guys seen the movie About Schmidt? It's worth checking out. Of course, now I have endorsed it, and I, I'm sure there's stuff in it I don't want to endorse, so don't see it. Um, but I have seen it, so I'm going to at least redeem it. About Schmidt is, uh, is the story of a man named Warren Schmidt, and it begins with him in a very empty office 
nothing on the wall except for a clock, sitting at a desk, nothing on the desk. And he is just sitting there, watching the clock, tick, 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 to 5 p.m. It's his very last day of work. It's the last minute before retirement, before he walks out of that office for the very last time. And so he dutifully waits for 5 p.m., clock ticks over, he gets up, he puts on his coat, one last look at the office, and he leaves it for the last time with a smile on his face. He's done. He got out of there, and he still has life to live. He goes to his retirement party, and he has a sweet time with all of his old friends, And isn't that the picture that so many of us are looking for? 5 p.m. for the last day of work when it's no longer anyone else's time but ours. That's the dream. That's the American dream for most of us. So many of us are working to get to retirement day. But where is the joy and the satisfaction and the permanence of that dream? Retirement day means that we have all peaked and now we have faded. It means that the dream is leaving us behind. It means that our life has been filled with fatigue and aches, boredom and grumpiness. The retirement party comes, and as soon as we are out of that office, we're replaced. We're obsolete. Someone younger, someone with newer trends, newer knowledge, takes our job. Schmidt comes back to his office, and he sees everything that he had done, his life's work, archived in boxes to be shipped away into obscurity. Boredom sets in. He doesn't know what to do with his time uselessness sets in. He can't do anything. Loneliness sets in. There's no one around him. And forgottenness. Who's Warren Schmidt anymore? This is the end of the American dream. This is what happens after retirement day. This is what we're living for, and yet this is what comes after it. So what do we do as that happens? Well, we look to kids, and we want to live through them. Kids are fun because they are energetic, and they are excited. They are filled with joy and adventure and optimism. We love watching them grow up and mature. What's the difference? Why is their life so full of energy, and our life is so full of fatigue? They are pursuing maturity. They are learning, trying, applying, growing in understanding and usefulness. They are pursuing the day of their commencement into this world. Children have a growth spirit. And it seems then that it makes a great difference what we set our sights on for how we live. When we live for commencement, we live to become and to do. When we live for retirement, we live to quit. 
The retiring spirit, I'm afraid, has taken hold of a lot of us. Not just in our jobs, but in our faith. It is not uncommon for many of us to look at heaven as the greatest retirement. Bliss and ease, comfort, recreation, golf. Christianity then becomes a ticket to punch. We take a minimalist approach to sanctification and service and church involvement and the like. We're just waiting for the clock to tick down. But in the Lord's Prayer, we discover that that is not what heaven is. Heaven is a place where God's will is being done right now. As it is, this moment, God's will is being done. Right now, God's angels, God's servants are working and serving and worshiping and in great industry. Heaven is a place of doers. Heaven, then, is not retirement in the Christian life. Rather, it is commencement. It is where we inherit the kingdom of God to work it. So when we pray, thy will be done, the Lord's prayer is calling us to a growing spirit, not a retiring spirit. When we look at this petition in detail, we are going to see that to pray thy will be done requires four changes to happen in the believer. The Lord's Prayer today is going to reveal the bankruptcy of the retiring spirit. It's going to show us the travesty of it. Right now, does the retiring spirit have hold of you? The Lord's Prayer asks you to turn from it and to learn what it means to pray, Thy will be done. It teaches us that we are part of an adventure that fulfills and brings great joy. The Lord's Prayer offers to all of us new life that makes a difference, work that satisfies, and that we can participate in at any age and for all the ages to come. So what do we mean when we pray God's will? It's important that we don't get on the wrong page at the very beginning because the Bible uses two senses for God's will. One is God's sovereign will. That is God's control of all that happens. Every moment is under God's sovereignty. When we pray, thy will be done, are we praying for God's sovereign will to be done? No. We are praying for another sense of God's will. God's moral will or God's perceptive will. We are praying for the kind, the, the, the will of God that is shown to us in things like the Ten Commandments that is shown to us in places like the Sermon on the Mount. It is the will that uh, calls upon our volition to participate. And the reason that we know that that's the will that's being talked about is because we recognize in the phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that there is a, a gap between the doing of God's will on earth from the doing of God's will in heaven. It means that those who are in heaven are perfectly following God's will for their life, whereas people on earth are falling short. So when we are praying for thy will to be done, we are praying for our wills to be conformed to God's will. We are praying for four changes that will happen in us, the believer, when we pray thy will be done. Let us now look carefully at this petition 
and see that these, these four changes that happen when we pray God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can follow in your handout the four changes. Let me go ahead and give them to you immediately, and then you can listen. One, the believer repents to follow God's will. Second, the believer renews his mind by learning God's will. Third, the believer relinquishes himself to God's will. And fourth, the believer rejoices in the doing of God's will. Now let us move up to that very first one again. The believer repents to follow God's will. How many of us feel very right in our own wills? Our choices, our ways, our opinions, our morals, they're right because we hold them. We all probably believe that the world would be better if more people agreed with us than disagreed with us. No one prays, not my will. Because that requires us to say, my will is bad. My will is poor. My will is wrong. So when we come to the Lord's Prayer and it says, thy will be done, we are immediately confronted with something that frankly should blindside us. It is telling us two very important things about our will. One, Our will is not God's will. And second, we all fall short of God's will. The reason that we have to pray, thy will be done, is because our will is not God's will, and our will falls short of God's will. This is universal. This excludes nobody. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of of the glory of God, which is to say that if our will ran the world, we would run it into the ground. We would run it away from God's glory and God's perfection. Thy will be done teaches us we are sinners, and the sinfulness lives in the core of our being. It lives in our will. Have any of you ever taken a moment to examine your motives for a decision? As you look at doing something and you're between two choices, have you looked at your motives and seen even in doing the right thing, there is something impure there? There is something selfish there. I remember when I was facing the decision of leaving my job as an engineer and going to seminary, and I had, I had wrestled on this question for a long time, and I began to look very closely at my motives, and there were very good motives. I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to use my gifts to the maximum of their ability I wanted to yield myself to God's will in my life. But also inside of that was, I hate this job. I want out of this job. And there was never a moment where my will, even to give myself entirely to God, 
was entirely pure of impure motives. And I submit to you, if you look into your own will, have you ever made a decision with 100% pristine motives? Or is there a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of self-gain, a little bit of personal ambition driving even your best choices? What does that tell us? But then in our very motives, the very core of our being, our will itself is stained and corrupted. We pray thy will be done because God wants us to know that our will is impure. This is made explicit in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul tells us that among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, Paul says, the verdict of mankind is that we are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What is that but the will? It is not just our will is corrupted by fleshly desires like sex. It is also corrupted by the corruption of our own mind that seeks pride, that seeks vainglory, that seeks to make ourselves the center of attention. It's not just in our flesh. Our very mind, our very will is corrupted. Jesus uses the metaphor of a tree and a fruit. The fruit, whether it is good or bad, does not come from the branches. It comes from the sap. It comes from the tree. And so if we are bearing bad fruit, if we are bearing impure fruit, tainted fruit, it reveals that the very core of our being is corrupted. The reality is this, the more that our will is being done, if we take Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 to heart, the more a child of wrath we become. Because in everything we do, we add impurity, we add sin and selfishness. And the reality when we see wrath is that we, by our own will, are bringing judgment. Our will is mixing a cup of judgment. Psalm chapter 75 verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. If our will makes us a child of wrath, then our will is preparing us to drink this cup of God's wrath. Thy will be done then is a call to repentance. What is repentance? First, it is a turning away from sin and a turning to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has come, lived a righteous life, died on the cross to bear the penalty of our sins, rose three days later to offer life and forgiveness to all who put their faith in his name. When we recognize the sin of our will, 
We must repent and trust in the gospel as the only place that will pay for the sin of our will and all other sins and give us the righteousness that we require to stand before God. So that's what repentance means in the first sense. But we make a mistake if we think repentance only describes the beginning of the Christian life. If it only describes an initial event of faith. The truth of the matter is that repentance is something that we do not just once, but daily. When the Reformation began, it began with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And the very first thesis that he wanted to discuss, the one that describes his entire complaint against uh, the Catholic Church and their view of indulgences, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Martin Luther recognized that every day we must repent of our selfish will and put ourselves again in the faith of Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ for his righteousness. For every day we are adding the sins of our will. Thy will be done is repentance to depend on Jesus for our righteousness every day. Repentance means that we move from death to life. Repentance is not a killjoy. It is rather taking us from death and bringing us into life. It is the spirit of maturity. It is the spirit of graduation. It is the one who is drawing closer to Christ and who wants to become more like him that repents. We need to recognize the cancer that comes from no repentance, the rejection of repentance. To say I do not need to repent now or I don't need to repent anymore is nothing less than saying I'm righteous now. I need no change. There is nothing I need teaching on. I need no more growth. I need no more increase in gratitude and love. To have a spirit that does not see daily need for repentance is to find the good news as old hat. Basically, if we have moved from repentance to do God's will to no repentance in our life, then we have adopted the retiring spirit. The believer repents to follow God's will. Second, when we pray thy will be done, we see the change comes that the believer renews his mind by learning God's will. Thy will be done is a call to know God's will. If we are going to pray thy will be done, we must desire to know God's will. Paul tells us at the end of his presentation of the gospel that saves us, that takes us from death to life in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he then turns to what does it mean for our life and says this to his readers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable 
and perfect. When we grasp the gospel, when we are saved by the gospel, we are then motivated. We must be charged with transforming our mind, renewing our mind to the mind of Christ. We need to recognize that Paul sees there are two choices that you face each day. There is being conformed to the world, or there is being transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you are passive about the will of God and learning the will of God, you are conforming yourself to the ways of the world. You are accepting conformity. But the Christian life is to be one of transformation, and that transformation comes by the renewal of your mind. How is that mind renewed but by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? That is an active engagement with God's word to read it, to consider it, to examine it, to question it for the sake of understanding its fullness, and therefore to come to the reality of its perfection, its goodness, and its acceptability. To pray, thy will be done, is to pray, renew my mind to know better God's will. Most of us in this room, I am sure, have asked this question, what is God's will for me? What does God want me to do? It's an honest, earnest question that we all face. I have at least some good news for you. The Bible has an answer. The very first psalm tells us this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The Lord's answer to the question, what is your will for my life, is to plant yourself deeply in his word, that wherever you are placed, wherever you go, you bear the fruit of godliness. So as we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? The question that comes back to you is, how well do you know the will I've already given you? If you have that will in, uh, bearing fruit in your life, the second question is much less pressing. To know the will of God, the word, and apply it in your life is what God's will is for you. Yet for many of us, the Bible is a chore. I mean, the preacher's up here saying, read the Bible again. Oh, I hate that application. Such drudgery to read the Bible. Why is that? I would suggest if that is what is in your mind is, as I talk about reading and knowing the will of God, that again you are afflicted with a retiring spirit. Like a man who has been on the job for 25 years and getting the memo, more training. Ugh, more tra I don't need to know anymore. I'm five years from being out of here. I'm almost done. When we look at the Bible like that, we come to it with a retiring spirit. 
as just another memo that we'd rather file in the trash can than read. But when we grasp thy will be done, it is calling us not to come to the Scriptures with a retiring spirit, but to come to the Scriptures with a growing spirit. It calls us to know the lover of our souls. Those who love God want to know God's Word. They want to know His will. The Word then is like a a love letter to you. We read love letters much differently than we read work memos. We pay attention to every stroke of the pen. And yet the word that we have been given to us has been given to us out of love that is unsearchable, that is full of desire for our good and for our fellowship and to be with us. Spiritually alive people hunger for spiritual food. What did Jesus say in the first temptation where his stomach pained for food and the devil said, we'll make bread from these stones He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, when you are alive spiritually, you hunger for spiritual food. We recognize that when we are praying, thy will be done, as we learned three weeks ago, we are praying this is kingdom heirs. The reason that we pray thy will be done is so that we know the Father's business. I enjoy one of the things about watching my kids is how much they learn from me by mimicry. They want to know how to be like their dad, so they do the things they see their dad do. One time I was holding up one of my children, one of my boys, and he wanted to give me a kiss. He wanted to give it to me right on the lips. Because that's what I do with mom. That's where we kiss. I'm just glad he didn't see any other ways that, uh, <laughs> that I kiss. He kept, you know, never mind, never mind. Uh, pardon me. That'll be what you remember, I know. But kids study and mimic. As kingdom heirs, we must learn our father's business. And that means we must take up and read and know the will of God. So the believer repents, the believer renews. Third, we see that the believer relinquishes himself to God's will. And here's where that passage that Elizabeth read comes to the fore. Why do we pray? What draws you to prayer? Most of the time it's to get something that you need. Heal me. Fix me. Give me this or that. But thy will be done reverses what prayer is all about. Thy will be done teaches us that prayer is not about getting our will. It is about putting ourselves in God's will, making ourselves at service for God's will, letting God's will reign. And is that not the, the necessary result of learning through the renewal of our mind the good and perfect and acceptable will of God? If we really do know God's will is good and acceptable and perfect, then whose will do we want but God's will? As we grow in the renewal of our minds, we should be increasingly desiring His will, not ours. Which means that thy will be done requires our relinquishment. We do not come to thy will be done with restrictions. 
Thy will be done, but don't make me move. Thy will be done, but don't interfere with my relationships. Thy will be done, but give me a great Saturday. Thy will be done, but. is not the spirit of this prayer. It is thy will be done, full stop. And the, the question that we need to ask as we come to this prayer is, do we accept God's no? If we pray earnestly for something and God says no, do we accept that as a good answer? We must learn to be relinquished to God's will because thy will be done requires that we love God more than self-interest. That we trust that God knows better than we know. That God's no to our desire for a yes is still better than if he had given us what we asked for. How can we pray like that? This is certainly not the retiring spirit prayer. The retiring spirit wants less and less to be bothered with the will of God. The retiring spirit wants to find the minimum. The retiring spirit wants to say, what do I have to do to get to retirement day and go for the minimum? But thy will be done is pressing in to make God's will more and more of your own. If we are going to pray like this, it requires us to recognize that it was also prayed for us. That is, that is where we will grow into this prayer. Thy will be done was prayed for us. When we go into that scene in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. He was facing the cross. He was re- facing rejection and mockery and the cruelty of man to the highest degree. But most of all, he was facing a cup that his father put in front of him and said, you have to drink this cup. And what is that cup? That cup is the well-mixed wrath of God that has been filled to brimming by all of my will be done that are that we have committed as fallen creatures. The righteous one, the one who came and perfectly did God's will in every way, in every place, in every thought, who had no impurity, no shadow of turning, was given the cup for every impure thought, impure motive, impure act, impure desire, Of his people. He was to drink the wrath as the righteous one. And he came saying, Not my will, but yours be done. It was a horror for him to imagine. He appropriately pleaded, If there be any other way, let it be. But the answer was no. And Jesus took the answer. And he relinquished himself entirely to it. He went 
the course that the Father set for him. Not out of anger, not out of resentment, but out of utter surrender and relinquishment. Jesus took the Father's no so that we can receive the yes of forgiveness and adoption and life. He took the no because he trusted his Father to do what was absolutely best. And because he took the no, we have a God who we pray to who says, yes, son, yes, daughter, come into my presence. Jesus shows us that thy will be done calls for us to give our entire life to this prayer. Anything less than giving God all of who we are makes the profession Jesus is Lord incomplete. We have not been ransomed into retirement, but into service. We exist for thy will be done. Fourth, the fourth change that happens in the believer who prays God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is this. The believer rejoices in the doing of God's will. The greatest lie that we find in this world is that happiness is in tension with obedience. What will fulfill you and give you joy is not in the center of God's will, but against it. You have to press the limits. You have to find a way around. You have to to disobey. You have to raise a little bit of hell if you're going to have any fun. That is the greatest lie. That lie brought Adam and Eve into the curse. Because they looked at the one fruit that God said no And they said, I'd rather have that than have God. And that's what they exactly got. The retiring spirit looks at thy will be done, and they see it as a joyless petition. If I must, okay. But how much of this do I have to do? Thy will be done is resented. But when we come to this prayer in the faith of Jesus we find a place quite surprising. We find in the very center of God's will a place of supreme joy, a place of endless rejoicing. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples on the last night before his arrest. He says in John chapter 15, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full or may be complete. In thy will be done, Jesus is offering us joy beyond compare. He is offering the joy that he experiences fully between himself and the Father because Jesus has always perfectly obeyed the Father. He has always experienced perfectly the joy and delight of the Father. He knows that where maximum joy is is where you experience God's full and flowing love and delight. And that is where God's will is being done. When Jesus teaches us to pray, then thy will be done, he is inviting us 
to experience the true and everlasting joy. The joy of your Father's delight. The joy of your Father's complete love flowing endlessly. When we obey God, when we follow these commandments, we are not depriving ourselves of joy. We are securing ourselves in true and everlasting joy. It is joy that we want to continue to repent so that we get closer to and enjoy more of. It is joy that we want to invest the renewal of our minds in so that we can know better and follow more completely. It is joy that calls us to relinquish more and more of our will so that we can be more and more centered in God's will. Because what flows out of all of that is ever-increasing joy. Joy that only Jesus has known and joy that only Jesus can give and joy that Jesus offers us when we pray, Thy will be done with a heart of faith in Jesus. How great is this joy? How immeasurably great is the joy that, God, that Jesus knows from following the will of God? It is given to us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, which tells us that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that comes from doing God's will is so great, so overflowing, so abundant, that even the suffering and misery and the cup of wrath that had to be drunk at the cross was a pale comparison to the joy and love and delight that laid ahead of Jesus who went through the cross. How immeasurably great is the joy that Jesus offers you. How immeasurably better is the joy and happiness that has no end that comes from the gospel than anything that we can claim for ourselves in disobedience to God's will in this world. Even the suffering of the cross cannot compare to the immeasurable greatness, the surpassing wonder of the joy of God, which is for everyone who prays with a heart of faith, thy will be done. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that we need to be Christians with a growing spirit and not a retiring spirit. Indeed, I I have to say the retiring spirit cannot pray the Lord's Prayer. And if it cannot pray the Lord's Prayer... We must question seriously whether it is a saved spirit. To close then, I ask that we reflect on a parable that Jesus gave to make sure that we use our time wisely. Jesus told of a master who was going away for a long time and that he entrusted his servants to do business while he was away. He gave one five talents, one two talents, and one a single talent. When the master returned, he found that the servants with the five and the two talents had been busy doing their master's will and came to him with twice as many talents as they had originally had. The master said to them with delight, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Be encouraged as you do the Lord's will, as you press yourself into thy will be done, even as it costs you in the world's eyes. For these words will be spoken to all those who have trusted and obeyed in Jesus. 
However, the third servant did not do as the other two had. He had taken the talent and buried it and done nothing with it. He simply waited until the master returned. When the master saw the servant had wasted his talent and not done his will while he was away, he spoke these words. You wicked and slothful servant, take the talent from him and give to him who has the ten talents and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. The retiring spirit is in great danger. It will not enter into heavenly rest. It will not experience the joy of its master. It will end up with nothing. It will end up with less than nothing. If you have a retiring spirit, repent and call upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Give your life to him. Make today the day you enter into the joy of your master and pray with a new heart. Thy will be done. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the vision that you have given us in this prayer. That you examine our hearts to show us their impurity. That you offer us in your word the place of refreshing and renewing that we can know your will. Father, that you call us to relinquish ourselves to your will, not because you are a spiteful God, but because greater joy lies in your will than anywhere else. And so, Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to examine our spirit, that we come to this prayer in the faith of Jesus, trusting in him, seeking to follow in his ways. Father, make the spirit of Jesus, which prayed, not my will, but your will be done, the spirit of our prayer too. And so we pray as your son taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.